breaking up, it's not because we get bored of Acts after a certain period of time, but because as a church we are trying to think about being a church who is on mission with God to go out and make disciples. And I think to keep coming back for three years, uh, to see that in action through the book of Acts um, is a good encouragement to us. So we're going to open up and pray because I need God's help. We all need God's help as we approach his word. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that we can come together in a, in a room of people who, who you, through all sorts of different means that you have brought to yourself to know Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the wonderful grace that you have shown us. We thank you that you'd never leave us on our own. We thank you that in these Bible we have, we have the very words of God to us. And Lord, as we look to your words this morning, may the very things that you had given them for, may they have their, their perfect effect in our life this morning. We pray for your spirit to, to fill all of us, that, we might, uh, that I might communicate clearly your word and that we might hear, receive and respond to your word rightly. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm not the most organised kid in town. Anyone who's been here for a long period of time, or even a short period of time, may already know that I'm not overly organised. But that's not the case in every area of life. If anyone knows anything about any time that we have gone away on holidays, will know that I am probably a little bit ultra-organised when it comes to holidays. It's not uncommon for me to be able to tell you what I'm doing on a holiday, which is 12 months in advance, can tell you where we're staying, what restaurants we might go to, what coffee shops in those locations we might go to. It's a little bit obsessive sometimes. And the funny thing is, if you were to ask me about my wedding day before it happened, I probably couldn't have answered most of your questions about what's going to happen on that day. You know how it often happens, come wedding day, the guy just says yeah to a few things, the girl's really keen on all of the details, the guy only speaks up if he doesn't like one of the details. But if you ask me, what are you doing on your honeymoon? I could have given you details galore. Locations, hotels, coffee shops, all of it. I could have told you the first two nights once we got to New Zealand, 7th, 8th of March, Cashel Apartments in Christchurch. It was ours. I booked it, and not only had I booked it, I was that gone that step further, I'd paid in advance. It was secure as could possibly be. Except for 13 days before that, it was Christchurch earthquake. Cashel Apartments came crumbling down to the ground. We didn't stay there at all. As a matter of fact, we didn't stay in Christchurch at all for the first two days of our honeymoon. But up until that point in time, I thought, it's booked, it's mine. It's got my money. How much more control could I have? Until there's a great big but. But something happened. There was overridden by something even bigger than my plans and my cash. As we look at the passage that we've been, had read for us this morning, we see the Jewish leaders where they presume that they've got all authority, power and control to affect all of the things around them. Yet all of their plans consistently get met by God's big but. They have a plan, then we see the words, but. And it's disrupted 
and plans change. They find they're not the ultimately one in control. Today in particular we're going to look at four big buts. There's eight buts in the entirety of this passage. Where the leaders had planned a particular course. Then we see but. And that plan comes to nothing. As we've gone through the book of Acts, you could say the book is summarised by that wonderful commission in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where Jesus said to his apostles, you will receive power and my spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as the spirit came upon God's people, we have seen those things begin to come to wonderful fruition. As God's Spirit came on his people, they boldly proclaimed the word of God and in that one very first day, 2,000 people came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. A little bit later we saw the healing of a man who was born lame for 40 years. And then as the people started to question the apostles about how this happened, Peter got up again and preached another sermon. And it says in in Acts chapter 4 verse 4, either now another extra 5,000 people were added or now the total had come to 5,000. But in the middle of all of this, not everyone's impressed. Not everyone's impressed by the healing. Not everyone's impressed by the teaching. Matter of fact, Peter and John are brought before the Jewish ruling leaders and they tell them, you are forbidden to speak about this name of Jesus ever again. And you could think, does this mean God's plan, the church is kaput? To spread the gospel, to be his witnesses, requires that you talk about Jesus. And the leaders have said, you can't. The thing is, how do they respond to that? They went back to their Christian brothers and sisters and they prayed, God, give us boldness to speak your word. And unsurprisingly, they did boldly speak the word of God. Last week we saw in the middle of this loving Christian community we've seen described at the end of chapter 2 and end of chapter 4, they had such a wonderful love for one another, unity, fellowship, devoted to the Lord's teaching. Yeah, but there were, for the first time we saw corruption within there. As Ananias and Sapphira wanted to look like they were doing something good and godly, but their heart's desire was very different than the example of Barnabas given beforehand. So the church in its early days was under pressure both from externally, the religious leaders saying, you can't say anything, but now also from pressure internally as people from in their own circles are becoming corrupted. And despite both of those things, the gospel witness continued to flourish, the church continued to grow, and as we saw last week in Acts 5.14, more than ever believers were added to the Lord. When the authorities say, you can't speak in the name of Jesus, but they just keep on doing it, you've got to wonder, what are the authorities going to do about it? Well, today's passage shows us what they planned to do about it, constantly being met with God's butt. Jailed, but. We've commanded you not to speak, but. We will kill you, but. And lastly, uh, Christians as living butts. Interesting titles, you won't forget them. 
Last week, the very first word of our reading was that word, but, to show there was a contrast being made between the good example of Barnabas and the bad example of Ananias and Sapphira. And now we see this week, we start with that word, but. In spite of the fact that it appeared that everything was free-flowing, everything was building and growing so strongly for the cause of the gospel, now we see what looks like a little hiccup along the way. Now, the Sadducees that we're introduced to, we are not um, hearing about them for the first time. We've read about them already on other occasions. The Sadducees were an interesting group of people. In particular, they had two key beliefs that are quite pertinent to the issue that we're looking at. One is they believed that the Messianic era had already happened back, back in the time of the Maccabees, so well before Jesus, and they didn't believe that there was such thing as a resurrection. And these people formed most of the Jewish ruling council that Peter and John had been brought before. Think about the apostles' teaching. One of the primary focus of the apostles' teaching is that Jesus is the Christ, that is that Jesus is the Messiah, which they think that was a long time ago, and that he's been raised from the dead and he's exalted to the right hand of the God. So when the apostles are teaching things like this, they're essentially proclaiming to those who were formerly considered to be their leaders, you've got the Bible all wrong. You've interpreted it wrong. You've done the wrong thing with regards to Jesus. And now, thousands of people are not only agreeing with this teaching that the apostles are bringing, but have now gone from being under the leadership of the Jewish leaders now to the leadership of the apostles. You can imagine they're not too impressed, are they? That People have brought a teaching different than their own and now they're taking a leadership different than their own. It's not surprised in verse 17 says they were filled with jealousy. When you read about the Jewish leaders, both through the gospel accounts and throughout the book of Acts, you get the impression they like their position. They like to be honoured and known as the leaders, known as the ones in that position of authority. But what is happening here seems to be both their position and their teaching is being undermined. And so the result is they grab the apostles. So now we're talking about more than just Peter and John. It seems to be a larger group of the Christians and they put them into jail. Now I've done a bit of ministry in the prison sort of environment and usually the idea is people think that if you put them into jail, not only does it punish them, but it should stop them doing from what they were doing because they don't have access to the things they were doing. But now in verses 19 to 21... We see the first of the big buts. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people of all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So it would seem like the rulers and the authorities had done everything they could to bring this to a complete end. But that would only happen if they really were the final authority, the highest power. And they're not. See, but an angel of the Lord came, opened the doors, brought the apostles out, and 
commanded them to do the very thing that they were put in prison for. And it was nice and polite to know that they, that they went and locked the doors behind them too because it, when they come to the uh, prison later on, the doors are locked. In previous exchanges between the leaders and the apostles, the apostles said to the leaders, what do we do? Judge for yourself. Do we listen to men or do we listen to God? And now the apostles, not only have they been given that commission by Jesus himself, you are my witnesses, go. But now as an angel of the Lord says, go and teach everything about this life in the temple. The next morning they say, we'll obey God. Day, daybreak, they're there in the temple teaching, doing the very thing they've been commanded twice not to do and put in prison for. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm only going to do that if I think what, it, what I'm doing is extremely important. And this is where the sort of the comedy side of the story comes out. The leaders go and say, let's go get them. Let's bring them back and we'll have some questioning. They go there. No one in the prison, doors are locked, but the apostles are not there. I wish I knew what was going on inside their head, because they're probably like, what? To heal a lame man who's been lame for 40 years, that's one thing. But you're not going to tell me that these guys can somehow miraculously get themselves out of jail. And then in the middle of all of their perplexed faces, wondering what's going on, in comes someone and says, I know where they are. They're right here, they're right in the middle of the temple, the place where you think you've got all rule and authority, and guess what they're doing? What you told them not to do, and what you sent them to prison for. So verse 26, here we go again, arresting them. It says, not taking them by force, because they fear they'll be stoned by the people. So it appears that even those who may not believe in Jesus themselves, had enough honour and respect for the apostles that they wanted them to be treated nicely. But you've got to wonder, what are they hoping to gain out of this? You've put them in prison, that didn't work. What's going to be your plan B? And it seems their plan B rests pretty heavily upon their authority. Maybe we just haven't made it clear enough who we are and what they should do. And verse 28 summarises, I suppose, the key of what they're trying to communicate. They say to the apostles, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So they make three points towards him. You don't know who we are. We're your leaders. And we told you, don't do it. Yet, which is like another word like but, yet you have filled Jerusalem with this teaching. I like that line. It says, they've been told not to do it, but he says, you filled this city with this teaching about Jesus. Wouldn't that be wonderful to be said of any place in the world where Christians exist, to be said of Toowoomba, that this city of Toowoomba has been filled with the wonderful good teaching about Jesus Christ? And then thirdly, say, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So the accusations of you are disobedient and you are slanderous. But what you see is neither of those two claims are actually true. But the apostles have received two sets of commands. They've received the commands from the rulers of the Jewish leaders who said, don't speak in this name. But the higher authority, Jesus says, you are my witnesses. 
in all of these areas right to the end of the world. The angel of the Lord says, go and teach these things. Who are they going to listen to? They're going to obey the higher authority. They're going to obey God. Sure, the Bible teaches us we are supposed to be subject to the governing bodies, the the rulers, the authorities that are placed in our world. We're told about that in Romans 13. We're told about this in 1 Peter chapter 2. But wherever our civil authorities call us to do something that undermines the authority of God, we will always obey the higher authority. But it's also hard and hardly fair to accuse the apostles. You guys intend to make us guilty of the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you remember back to Matthew chapter 27? Jesus here on trial before Pilate and the crowds are saying, crucify him. When Pilate saw he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood, you see to it yourselves. And all the people, which included the Jewish leaders who were saying, "Use apostles are accusing us, making us guilty of Jesus' blood, they answered, his blood be on us and on our children. So when it comes to securing Jesus' crucifixion, they're saying, yep, it's on us. We'll take responsibility for this. And now they're accusing the apostles and say this is unright for them to do so. So how do the apostles respond to these accusations and charges? The quick answer is pretty much the same way they've been doing it all the way along. Reminding them again, this Jesus whom God has honoured, whom God has raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God. If God has honoured him, surely his people should honour him. And our second big but, you've commanded us this, but we must obey God, not men. By use of a table, let me illustrate the differences between what God says and what the Jewish leaders are saying taken from our passage. God commands his peoples to teach others about Jesus. God raised Jesus from the dead. God exalted Jesus as ruler and saviour. God gives his spirit to those who obey him and God offers Israel repentance and forgiveness of sins. The Jewish leaders were told that you crucify Jesus, not that they did the crucifying, but it was at their request, and that they do not obey God because they are commanding things that are opposed to God's commands. They are asking for the crucifixion of the one whom God has honoured and exalted to the highest place and has given the name above all names. You know how you meet some people and they're so diplomatic they just couldn't offend anyone? Peter's not one of them. Before the very people who have commanded him never to speak in this name, put him in jail for it, who consider themselves to be the religious leaders of the people, he says it very plainly. We've got to do this. This is what God has called us to. This is what God has said about Jesus. But he doesn't shy back from the fact that, and this one who God has honoured, you've had him crucified. The one who's actually obedient to God, God gives him his spirit. And it's not because Peter's just got a a desire to offend people. We've all met someone who just seems to like offending people. It's because he wants to honour God. But even in the middle of that, 
you see that gracious offer of salvation. To the very same people who says, you are guilty of having this man killed and God offers you repentance and forgiveness. That's pretty incredible grace, isn't it? Like Jesus does the same to those who are plotting against him in the Gospels. He continues to hold out the wonderful offer of salvation to the very people who are persecuting him. And that should encourage us as we're thinking about people that we're talking to and, and talking to them about Jesus. You know how there could be that little temptation within us to say, I don't like that person. They don't deserve it. Want to know something? Neither did you. Neither did I. We have received abundant grace in order that we might show abundant grace. And despite all the religious leaders have seen, it looks like they just refuse. They're not going to consider or look at any of these claims the apostles are bringing before them. So if at first they were filled with jealousy and jailing's not working, what happens next? We kill you. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honour by all of the people, stood up and gave orders to the men to be put outside for a little while. So here's our third major but. The leaders wanted them dead. Thought if jail doesn't work, let's kill them. Although interestingly, that didn't work so well with Jesus, but anyway. The intended path was to have them killed, but we see another but. A disruption of their plan showing there is a higher authority. This time it's Gamaliel who's got another plan. He seems a bit of a cautious kind of guy. He's like, settle down, easy on, let's take a good long hard look at this. Tells us Gamaliel was a man who was held in honour by all of the people, hence why they, they so readily listened to him. But he was also a Pharisee, so some of the things that were really offensive to the Sadducees weren't so offensive to him. He didn't have a problem with the concept of a resurrection, nor did he believe that, that the Messiah was something that happened well before Jesus came. But as we look through the rest of the scriptures, we see other things about him. He is the very rabbi whom Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, learned from. And it's possibly the first Jewish leader, particularly after the resurrection, to be sympathetic towards the Christians at all. And as he looks back over history, he's like, you know what? I've seen this all before. This, this Jesus, this teaching isn't the first time that people have, have risen up a teaching different to ours. And in the past, the things they've found not to be of God and they've come to nothing. He says, look at the examples of Theodos and Judas. You know, they, they got a bit of a following, but eventually they were killed. It all came to nothing. And he says, if this is from man, just let it go. It'll come to nothing. Nothing will go. Just let them do what they want to do. But he says, if you can't overthrow them, then you might actually be opposing God. This is his case. He says, I present the case. Keep away from these men. Let them alone. If this plan or this undertaking is from man, it will fail. If it's from God, it will, you will not be able to overthrow it. You might even be found to opposing God. So they took his advice. He says, if it's not God, it'll fail. It's kaput. 
Now, our fourth and final major but. But if it is God, you won't be able to overthrow it. And for him to say in his position, and you might even be found to be opposing God, is quite, quite astounding. Even to have that as a possibility, that maybe this is something about God. But I think he falls a little bit short of where it should go. If it's not of man, and if you can't bring it to nothing, and if it maybe is from God, then maybe you also need to think about the way you've approached the scriptures. Maybe you think you need to rethink about Jesus. Maybe you need to hear again the things the apostles have been teaching. Maybe even need to repent and to believe if this is the case. But they've seen plenty of evidence that it's not the work of man, isn't it? They've seen Pentecost guys speaking the wonders of God in languages they've never learnt before. They've seen the healing of a man which they didn't doubt was a miraculous healing, a guy that they've seen for 40 years who was, who was lame and begging for money, all of a sudden can walk and leap and all these things. Send him to jail or get out of it. Things are kind of giving the impression exactly what Gamaliel told us to look out for. If you can't overthrow them, maybe it's God. So what do they do? Give them a good old-fashioned flogging and try, we'll just give this thing a go. We're the leaders, say nothing, off you go. I wonder if they thought that was actually going to work. To tell them for a third time, don't speak in this name again. Because every other time it hasn't worked, has it? Every other time they're like, you're telling me to be something that I'm not. I have been bought by Jesus Christ. I belong to him. He's given me the commission to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. This is who I am. I can't stop it being who I am. And so we see the description of the response that I called living butts in verses 41 and 42. Now, social media can be a bit of a nasty place. People say nasty things about people Um, Christians receive some of it as well but it's not only Christians but nobody likes abusive language no one likes threats no matter who they're being put against or why they're being put against someone but when you think about what the apostles faced it was far worse than anything you're going to get posted on social media in your life and let's have a look at their response then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonour for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. They were honoured to be dishonoured for the name. You think, are these guys sick in the head? Are they like masochists? They just they get a kick out of the negative response and the negative treatment? No. They felt honoured that they were dishonoured because something in them reflected something of Jesus who was also dishonoured. And the fact that people could see that within them, they thought, this is who I am. That's wonderful. It's evident what God has called me to be is what is happening and people are responding to me just like they did to Jesus. And because their identity and all of their life was so consumed with Jesus, what did they do? They continued to teach And not just privately, secretly, behind doors. Yes, they did go from house to house, but they continued to do it right there in the middle of the temple. Not the slightest bit of withdrawal. But what's astounding is these same followers 
are the same ones when Jesus was crucified, on the day when Jesus was going to be raised, were hiding in a room for fear of the Jewish leaders for being associated with him. So they go from hiding in a room scared of the Jewish leaders to, I don't care what the Jewish leaders say. I have seen the risen Christ. I have received his Holy Spirit. This is who I am. I must. This is good news that cannot be kept to myself. It's a passage with many big butts. And it's the only sermon where it may be appropriate to say, I like big butts and I cannot lie. The butts are all a disruption to the natural cause of events. Things were going a particular direction. And then there's but. The religious authorities thought they had the plan. They thought they had the authority to carry things out. And they're always brought to nothing. Because the good news about Jesus is about a big but. That all of us have dishonoured the God who created us, who's given us life and breath and everything. And that we deserve justice as a result of that. But Jesus came to deal with that for us. Or to use the language of Paul in the book of Ephesians, from Ephesians chapter 2, he writes it this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Not the most positive start. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love, which with he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What turns us around for being dead in our sins, being by nature children of wrath? The but which turns that around is the mercy of God is that he acts for our benefit when we've offended him. I remember when I was a young fella, in my teenage years, I thought being a Christian was the most idiotic thing a single person could do. And that wasn't saying that as an ignorant person who didn't know anything about the teachings of Jesus. I grew up going to church, did the whole Sunday school, church, youth group, all those things to keep mum and dad happy. But I thought, what a stupid thing. To think that you are trying to tell me there's something wrong with me and I need someone else. Yet somehow you can probably imagine there's been a transition between then and now all of a sudden I think it's the most important thing to be telling people about Jesus. That's the, that's the work which God does to, to help us to see the wonderful good news of the gospel. It was the same gospel I'd heard for years and years and years and all of a sudden... The same thing which I was in denial of and was trying to block out. I couldn't deny the fact that I was drawn to it. And if there's one repeated emphasis in our passage here is that world leaders or even people in positions of power, they're not all powerful. We're not all powerful. We can't plan anything. Anything that we plan to do, anything authorities and leaders plan to do, none of it is guaranteed that they can pull it off. 
any more than my attempts to stay at the Cashel Apartments in Christchurch. Booked, paid, so what? Earthquake, bang, gone. No matter how influential, no matter how powerful they are, nothing they plan is guaranteed. There's only one whose every plan is guaranteed and brings it to pass. Which we read about in Isaiah 46, 9 to 11. I am God. There is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring from the end to the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. There's no I might do it. There's no I will do it unless something else happens. Everything I've done from beginning to end, I will achieve my purpose. And this is the confidence that the apostles' boldness rests upon. They know the one to whom they belong can and does do everything according to his goodwill and purposes. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden that, oh yes, God got us out of jail this time, it means that any time something bad happens, he's just going to get us out of there. Let me tell you, every single one of the apostles, with the exception of John, was killed because of their beliefs and their teaching. But despite opposition from powerful men, from nations, from people, Jesus' word stands when he said, I will build my church and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. You might have think it was all going to go downhill and sour when the religious leader says, you can't mention Jesus. It's very hard to, to bear witness to Jesus without mentioning Jesus. But they thought, higher authority, I must do this. But it wasn't just the early church. You see Nero, when, he, when, when Rome burnt down, blamed the Christians, tried to turn everyone against them. There was a Roman emperor in, three, in the sort of 4th century, in the year 303, he issued an edict, this is Diocletian. He says, you must burn all the churches, kill all Christians and burn every copy of their scriptures. Now if there's a plan and if there's a law it's designed to wipe it out in its entirety, there it is. But the church continues to flourish, continues to grow, despite the fact that it will always continue to face opposition. God has absolute power. And because of that, it comes with a warning, as Peter says, to the religious leaders. We are by nature guilty of dishonouring this one, the one who's given us life and breath and everything. And we are by nature headed for justice. But I love the way he deals with them, even though he says it, those, those things that none of us like to say to somebody. He says, but he gives repentance and forgiveness of sins. The one who is offended offers to give the very thing to make it right. Think about any powerful leader in the world. If you dishonour them, you will get justice. And I can guarantee you, they're not going to do anything to act for your benefit to bring peace in that relationship, to bring about reconciliation. This is the grace and mercy of our God who must bring justice. If he's to be good, he must bring justice but who acted himself to bear the weight of the punishment for what was due to us. This is his grace and mercy. He acts and he offers reconciliation. But also to those who are already following and trusting him, 
There's encouragement knowing that he achieves all that he wills, that everything he calls us to do, he can do. In the middle of our life where many things look like they're heading to chaos, God always has a but that he uses for our good. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that there's so much more to life than what we can see with the eye. We thank you that even something that looks like like it's destined heading to the most horrific of circumstances, that you can change that in an instant. Lord, I thank you that you changed that for me. That when I was heading down a path where I was very openly and proudly hostile towards you, yet you continued to hold out your offer of salvation. In fact, you even sent your son to die to secure it for someone like me and for all of us who are hostile and rebellious against you. We thank you for that love and grace. Lord, we pray that all who hear about Jesus would hear and know the wonderful grace that he offers, the forgiveness that he offers, even to the very people who may have done very hostile things towards him, said hostile things towards him. Lord, there is no one who is outside the bounds of your grace. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Oops.